Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Please stand for the reading of the word. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for which such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this will be unprofitable for you.
It is good to see all of you this morning. I like to begin my Sunday mornings by making statements that are irrefutable. So, great is our God, and greatly to be praised. I appreciate that GCA has always been a singing church. I appreciate that you sing with gusto to our God. We are in the book of Galatians still, and we are in chapter 5 still, and we're going to pick up at verse 11. Last week, we worked our way through the end of this chapter, but we didn't really get a chance to dig into the details, and so this morning we're going to dig deeper into the details. So much of what was going on in Galatia was a Jew-Gentile distinction. And that distinction has a lot to do with history that we, as 21st century Gentiles, just are not inherently familiar with. For 1,400 years, the Jews had been keeping the law of Moses. And we can't blame them for that. God told them to. God gave them the law at Mount Sinai and not only instructed them to do it, but then said, when you don't do it, I'll punish you and I'll punish you bad. So for 1400 years, they have felt like they were the singular chosen people on the planet, that they were the ones who had the law. They had the ordinances. They had the prophets. They had the oracles of God. They were, in particular, the people who had the revelation of God in their midst. They had the worship of God. They had the temple of God. They were the only people who knew how to worship the true and living God. And that worship involved a great deal of activity, a great deal of work. There were sacrifices all the time, a constant flow of blood coming out of the temple. (coughs) There was tithing. There were particular sacrifices that you had to do on particular dates. There were feasts to keep. There were Sabbaths to keep. There were 613 ordinances to keep. And the Jews, for the most part, especially among the leaders, they were quite strict about all of these rules being followed the way they were laid out. And that, to the Jewish mindset, was how they were accomplishing their justification before God. Because they were doing the stuff that God said to do. And then Paul comes along. And starts telling, especially you read it in the book of Acts at the Jerusalem Council, you see Paul and Peter both say that they have been preaching to Gentiles. And what they've been telling the Gentiles is, you know, if you just have faith in Christ, if you just have faith in his finished work, then you can be fully justified something that the law could never do. Well, you can see why the Jews would not agree. You can see why the people who have been keeping the law for all these years would be going, hold up just a moment, Paul. Uh, Now, what? 
Say that one more time. So you can be justified through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross on Calvary, his death, burial, resurrection. Faith in that is enough to get you eternally justified before the God of ages who has made us do all this stuff. How do you get away with saying that? As a consequence, Paul refers to the cross of Christ which is just a shortened version of, it's just a nickname for all the stuff that Christ did. His actual death, his actual burial, his actual resurrection, his ascension, God accepting that sacrifice for the salvation of all his people, that is all encompassed in Paul's phrase, the cross of Christ. And Paul says that the cross of Christ was a stumbling block for the Jews. They stumbled over it, but you can see why. After everything they've been doing for 1,400 years, Paul says the cross of Christ completely undermines all of that. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, you cannot be justified by the works of the law, which you guys have been so busy doing for 1,400 years, but you can be fully and eternally justified if you'll just believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can see why they would stumble over that. That's a tough one to swallow. Well, that's the background for what Paul says here in verse 11. He is defending the fact that he is teaching something decidedly different than what the Judaizers have come and taught the Galatians. The Judaizers have come and told them, now you need to be circumcised, and now you need to keep some part of the law. You need to be more like us, because we've been doing this stuff for 1,400 years. We're the chosen people. We're the ones with the oracles. We've got the law. We have the prophet. We have the scripture. We're the ones you have to be more like. Paul's saying, no, you don't. Paul says what you need is faith in the finished work of Christ. And if... Paul asks, if I was saying the same thing as they're saying, why are they persecuting me? Why are they giving me such a hard time if, in fact, I have already taught you Galatians the same thing that they're saying? It's different. At the beginning of the book of Galatians, he said, it's a different gospel. Heteros, not the same as, opposite to. And he also says there are some who are troubling you who have undermined, King James says, perverted the genuine gospel of Christ. So in chapter 5, verse 11, with all that background in mind, you can see why Paul would say, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, which he clearly didn't, circumcision there being a nickname for keeping the law, If I still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted by them? Clearly, I'm saying something different to you than they are saying to you. And if I were saying that you need to be circumcised and keep the law, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So what he's saying is the complete perfection that is found in the perfect Savior who gave a perfect sacrifice 
Kenneth this morning read out of the book of Hebrews. One of my favorite verses out of Hebrews 10.14 is, By his single sacrifice he perfected forever those that he sanctified. Perfected forever. So if in fact his single sacrifice perfected forever all those that he sanctified through his death, what do you have to add to that? What can you add to that? Because if you could add anything to that, that's admitting that the sacrifice was not perfect, that he didn't fully do it, that it's not complete. He did most of it, but now it's up to you to do something. Well, Paul says that is to make the cross and the offense of the cross, the stumbling block of the cross, well, then that's to abolish that. To really make clear this difference between what Paul is teaching to the Gentiles and what the Jews have been teaching the Gentiles and trying to pull them along. And uh, you can turn to 1 Corinthians if you'd like. Keep your finger there in chapter 5 of Galatians. But 1 Corinthians, the very first chapter, Paul, when writing to the church at Corinth, which was also a very troubled church a church that was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, but a church that was just so carnal and who did so many things wrong that Paul had to write two letters that we still have. There appears to be a third that we don't have. In both of them, they're corrective letters. They're long corrective letters. And at the end of the second letter, Paul says, I'll deal with the rest when I get there because this was such a problematic church. And yet, good news, you'll notice that neither Paul nor Jesus referred to the church at Corinth as no longer a church. So it's good to remember that churches full of messed up sinners are still called churches. I'm thankful for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul lays out one of the primary differences between the Jews and the Greeks. Now, when he says Greeks, he is speaking of the Gentiles. The world, Paul's world at that time, was Hellenized. Ever since Alexander the Great and since the empire of Alexander had been split up, Greek was the language of the realm, and Hellenized culture was pervasive throughout that area of the world. So Paul refers to Greeks as opposed to Jews because the Jews, in large part, attempted not to be completely Hellenized. They didn't want to be Gentilized. If that's not a word, it is now. Use it in a sentence later. And so Paul, in drawing the differences between the Jews and the Greeks, in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1 says, for indeed, the Jews ask for signs. That's what it's going to take for them to believe. They need to see a sign. And the Pharisees were asking Jesus all the time, what sign do you show us so that we can believe you are the Son of God? And he ends up saying to them, a wicked, adulterous generation requires a sign to believe, and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, I'm going to be three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. That was the only sign Jesus deigned to give. But the Jews 
required a sign. You got to show us a miracle. I mean, even King Herod, when Jesus stood before him, Herod was like, show me something. Do, do a sign for me. So Paul says this is a characteristic of the Jews that they require a sign. Meanwhile, the Greeks seek for wisdom. And that was very much a part of Hellenistic culture, was the pursuit of philosophy and the pursuit of wisdom. So the Jews asked for signs. The Greeks searched for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, that's a problem for both groups, says Paul. Christ crucified, the finished work of Christ, Christ on the cross. He says to the Jews, that's a stumbling block. Same idea. To the Jews, they stumble over it. And we can understand why. Because if Jesus actually did die, resurrect again, sailed off into the blue, is sitting at the right hand of the Father at this very moment, ever living to make intercession for us, then everything that the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, have invested their life in has been set aside in favor of the superior finished work of Jesus Christ. For the Jews, that is a stumbling block. For the Jews, that's part of the reason that they have difficulty embracing the finished work of Jesus Christ because they are so committed to the law. But at the same time, Paul also says, but to the Gentiles, that's foolishness. They're the ones that are looking for wisdom. We want philosophy. We want deep understanding. We want Gnostic ideas. We want grandiose concepts. And the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ is beyond them. So the Jews, who are always looking for a sign, they stumble over the cross of Christ because it's the end of Jewish legalism. And to the Greeks, it's too easy. It's too simple. I think, Jason, that it was in a conversation with you just a couple of weeks ago that we were talking about how people still have difficulty with this idea, that it's, it's relatively simple. Just, just believe in Christ, because we all want to do stuff. And I have been accused before. People have said to me, well, you make the Christian religion too easy, because you say all you got to do is believe in Christ, and that's too easy. And I say, yeah, try it. Try to do that. Try to just believe in the finished work of Christ as your full justification, and you'll find out it ain't easy. You'll find out that it takes the Holy Spirit of God in you for you to even begin to have faith in Jesus Christ. And even then, your fleshly legalistic tendencies are going to say, oh, I saw what you did. How can you call yourself a Christian? You better justify yourself right now. Get busy doing some good. You better do something to balance out that bad you did a little earlier. That's just our natural tendency. And so it is. It's a difficulty for us Gentiles. Because it seems too simple. It seems like foolishness. But, says Paul, to those who are the called, particular group of people, 
the people who are called by Jesus Christ, the ones who in the book of Romans, the ones who are called are the ones that God predestined, are the ones that God justified, who are the very ones who God glorified. So this phrase, the called, is talking about a very particular group of people. Those people who God himself chose and drew to himself. So to the called, whether they're Jews or whether they're Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Real interesting. If Christ is the dunamis of God, then he's that sign that the Jews are always looking for. Show us a sign. Show us an act of power. Show us a miracle. Christ is that dunamis power. Christ is that miracle. The death of Christ being raised again, going to the right hand of God, that's the only miracle you need. And yet at the same time, Christ is also the wisdom of God. And Paul is about to say, and the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest man. So no matter how much you might say, well, Christianity needs to be more complex. Christianity needs to be deeper, more Gnostic. You make it too simple. You just say, faith in Christ will get you justified. Yeah, faith in Christ will get you justified. And it ain't that easy. But it will also demonstrate to you the phenomenal wisdom of God who knows exactly what you're like. And he knows that you're incapable of keeping the law. And he knows that you're incapable of justifying yourself. And in fact, he knows that you're incapable of doing better than you're already doing. And that ain't good. I was raised in the religion of do better. That's what I heard every Sunday. I dragged my body off to my Lutheran church with my, well, my parents would drag my body off to the Lutheran church. And all we would ever hear was, do better. And I knew I couldn't do any better. I'm doing as good as I can right now. And this is it. And if this ain't good enough, then I'm not good enough. And all it caused me to do was despair. And I left the church. What a great day it was when I heard about the grace of God. And I realized that God, the God who made heaven and earth, also is the God who knows that I'm just dust and I can't do any better than this. And that same God formed a plan since before the foundation of the world, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world to save wretched people just like me. What phenomenal wisdom. Look, every religion in the history of the world doesn't matter what one you come up with every religion in the history of the world says whatever the benefit of our religion is if you want that benefit then you got to do stuff you got to get busy and do the work only christianity singularly christianity says christ did the work Every religion in the history of the world says, if you want to live, you got to do stuff. Christianity says, Christ did stuff, now live. That's completely different. That's completely, and so smart. Because every time men come up with religions, they come up with the religion of do stuff. 
only the wisdom of God came up with, I will send my son, and he will do for you what you simply cannot and will not do for yourself. And through faith in him, through understanding that he is a perfect savior and that if you have faith and confidence and trust in him, that will get you eternal justification and redemption so that you can stand in my presence for all of eternity. That's, that's genius. Mm-hmm. And the Greeks didn't get it. And Jesus died and raised again and went to the Father. And the Jews didn't get it. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. And the Greeks, who were always looking for wisdom, thought, well, that's foolishness. But Paul says this in verse 25. The foolishness of God, he's not saying God is foolish. He's saying the least elements of God you can think of. The foolishness of God is wiser than any man. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he answered both the Jews and the Gentiles. Yes, it's a stumbling block, but it's also miraculous. And yes, it's simple, and it's also genius, because God has thoughts so far beyond your thoughts, has ways so far beyond your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, says Isaiah, are God's ways above your ways and his thoughts above your thoughts. He is so far above you that even his least thoughts are smarter than the smartest thing you ever thought in your lifetime. And for those who are constantly looking for shows of power, the weakness of God is stronger than any man. So Paul has had to deal repeatedly with this stumbling block of the cross to the Jews. And he is Jewish, and he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, and he was a Pharisee, and he said that before the law, he was blameless. But he reached the point where he said, but I have to consider all of that collectively, all of that I consider as trash. The word is actually much more colorful than that. But I consider all of that to be nothing compared to the glory of Christ. I will put all of that behind me so that I could gain Christ. So he knows the stumbling block. He knows what he's talking about when he says in Galatians 5, I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And he sees that as a bad thing. The stumbling block of the cross is purposeful. It is meant to be a stumbling block. It is the place where we all have to stop and encounter ourselves and our flesh and our egos and our actions, and we have to deal with the man on the cross. And we stumble over that. Sometimes that's difficult for us. Sometimes we have to drag our tired, sinful little selves to the cross and just stand there for a moment gazing and wondering at a God who would do such a thing. The cross and the offense of the cross is a necessity. Verse 12. I would that those who are troubling you, 
those Judaizers, those ones that want to cut on you, I would that they would even mutilate themselves. That's the NASB rendering of it. Last week, we talked a little more about it. I'll just kind of leave it there. But Paul is being really harsh here and saying, if they're so fond of cutting, just, just cut the whole thing. Just cut. I would that they would even just mutilate themselves. Pretty harsh language. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. I've been preaching grace, what, 30 years now? Almost half my life. I've heard all the arguments against it. Usually, type to me in email in all capital letters just to let me know they're upset. And usually the argument goes, you can't set people that free. You can't preach that kind of radical freedom, Jim. You can't say grace, 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 grace all the time. You, you got to put a little bit of obedience and legalism on people. You got to put a little something on them to keep them from going nuts. Because if you just tell them that they're free, then their sinful proclivities are going to take over and they're going to go nuts on you. And I have responded for all these years that I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just someone telling you what the Holy Spirit has written down for you. But the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in you becomes the governor on your behavior. Therefore, I can, in fact, say everything that Paul says, everything that the gospel says, I can preach that radical freedom to you, knowing full well that the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you is also going to act as a governor on your behavior. I don't have to come over at 4.30 in the afternoon, knock on your door and say, what are you doing? Anybody in here sinning? I knew it. I especially don't do it at Christmas. Anyway, it's a whole other thing. So Paul says, you were called for freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for your flesh. But through love, through sacrificial love, then serve each other. Look after each other. Take care of each other, which is not our natural fleshly reaction to each other. Our natural fleshly reaction to each other is, I got mine, you get yours. I'm okay, you're so-so. I'm the good one. I know I'm the good one. Because I see you. I didn't mean to look right at you. So Paul keeps adding this balance. Christianity is so remarkably balanced. You are called for freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from guilt. But also free from your enslavement and imprisonment to sin. Look, if it were not for the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence in you, you wouldn't know that you were sinning. You wouldn't care that you were sinning. It wouldn't affect you that you were sinning. And that pretty much describes the whole wide world right now. If you do not have that God conscience inside you, you're not going to care that you're sinning against God. 
But if you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you, one of the things that the Spirit does on top of giving you faith in Jesus Christ is it also convicts you of your sinfulness. You become aware that you're a sinner, and that's on purpose. The Holy Spirit is teaching you your own sinfulness so that you'll feel your need of a Savior. The Holy Spirit is driving you to Christ by teaching you how depraved you are. And that is a gift of the grace of God that he is teaching you how sinful you truly are so that you do understand your need for a complete, utter Savior. But just because you know that you're absolutely free in Jesus Christ, Paul then balances that with, but now knowing that you're free in Christ, don't use the fact that you're free to go act like the whole rest of the fleshly world. Be different. Be, as you've heard me say a million times, be the Christian. Be different than the world. And how do you demonstrate that you are different than the whole rest of the world? Well, you don't act like the whole rest of the world that is all me first, that is all about their own ego, that is all wrapped up in their self-promotion, their constant narcissism. Instead, through sacrificial love, serve one another. Look after one another. For the whole law, the entirety of the law, is wrapped up in this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where did Paul get that? And how does he get away with saying it so definitively that the entire law is wrapped up in the statement that you should love your neighbor as yourself? Well, he got that from Jesus. He got that directly from the teaching of Christ himself. If you want to see it, turn over to Matthew 22 for a moment. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees. And he did something truly remarkable. Matthew 22, I'm going to start reading at verse 34. All right, everybody there? Matthew 22, I'm going to start reading at verse 34. And when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a keeper of the law, a promoter of the law of Moses, asked him a question. Not so that he could get information, but we're told by Matthew that he was testing him. He was trying. He was trying to trip him up. Said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, I am sure that when he asked that question, he was thinking of the ten. Tell us which of the ten is the big one. Now, if you say Sabbath, then you're confirming the covenant of the law at Mount Sinai. So certainly for us Jews, Sabbath would be the one. Go ahead, say it, Jesus. Go on, confirm us. Or is it something else? Is it maybe you'll have no other God before me? Pick one that you think is the primary one, Jesus, rather than fall into their trap, goes to Deuteronomy 6.4 of all places, not to the Ten Commandments, 
And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, 5. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is one of the most definitive statements in the Old Testament. It is known among the Jews as the Shema. Shema just means listen, hear. You probably know the phrase Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad, which means hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. So they're talking about the singularity of God. There are all these other gods in the world. They are not gods. He is the one God. They are not saying we're anti-Trinitarians. That's not what they were saying. Because they referred to him as Elohim, which is a plural word. It's the same plural word that you find back at the creation in the book of Genesis, which is why most translations say, let us make man in our image. They keep it in that plural form because Elohim is a plural word. And so they weren't saying he is singular in an anti-Trinitarian way. They were saying he is the one, and he is the only one, and he is the only God that you should be worshiping. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord, he is one. And the very next verse says, and you shall love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so when they come to Jesus and they say, well, what is the great commandment in the law? He goes to that one. He goes to, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. Now, that's Jesus speaking. That seems like pretty good authority. When he says the greatest of all commandments isn't even found in the Ten Commandments, it's found over in Deuteronomy 6.5. The great commandment is love the Lord your God, the one God, and love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, everything that you have, love and commit yourself to that God. But then he adds, and they didn't even ask. They didn't say, give us your top two. He adds the second one is like it. And he goes to Leviticus 19.18, and he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, I'm going to start reading at verse 17, actually says, you shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. This is a rule for the Jews, don't hate your fellow countrymen. You may surely instruct your neighbor, you can reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. In other words, you can reprove him, you can correct him, but don't hate him. At the point where you hate him, you have entered into sinfulness and rebellion. And right behind that, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That phrase, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is the end of that entire instruction. It's just a phrase. And Jesus, out of the entire Old Testament, went to that phrase, pulled it out, and said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments. 
love God and love your neighbor, depend the whole law and the prophets. When he said the whole law and the prophets, he means the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. That was a Hebraism, the law and the prophets, because that's what essentially made up their scripture. And so he said the entirety of all the rules, of all the instruction in the entirety of what we call the Old Testament can be wrapped up in these two things. Love God, love your neighbor. And really, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first three are all about love God. You should have no other God before me. Don't make graven images. Don't worship anybody but me. And don't take my name in vain. And the other commandments all have to deal with your neighbor, how you treat your neighbor. And Jesus just said, if you love your neighbor, you're going to fulfill the law. And that's true, because you're not going to kill your neighbor if you love your neighbor. You're not going to steal stuff from your neighbor if you love your neighbor. You're not going to commit adultery with your neighbor's wife if you love your neighbor. You're not going to covet your neighbor's stuff if you love your neighbor. If you truly, sacrificially care about your neighbor, you're just going to naturally fulfill the things that the Ten Commandments require of you. So, Paul picks up that very same concept here in Galatians 5, verse 14, and he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He got that directly from Jesus. He has good authority for that. And then the rest of this chapter is him expanding on that concept of what it is to love your neighbor and to live in a way where you're not using your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh. Starting at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, which would be the opposite of loving each other, if you carry on in your fleshly preferences, you're going to end up biting and devouring each other. So take care lest you be consumed by one another. You're going to destroy each other. If you carry on talking, acting, and being the way you naturally are, you're going to do damage to everybody around you. Here, let's see if this is true for a moment. I know you all hate it when I ask you to raise your hand. Um, So you don't have to raise your hand. Just stand up. um, How many of you have ever damaged somebody else so badly that to this day you feel guilty about it. (laughs) Kenneth Kenneth actually acted like he was about to stand up. Yeah. Because that's what we do. That's our natural sinful self. We hurt people. We don't help people. We don't encourage people. We don't lift people up. We stomp on people to advance ourselves. That's the way this whole world works. And so Paul has just contrasted the command from Jesus to sacrificially love and serve each other versus the way you naturally are. And after your flesh, you are destructive and you are hateful and you will do whatever you got to do to take care of number one. And you know that's true. 
for the whole law is fulfilled in the word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you consume each other. Verse 16, but I say, here's Paul's instruction. I say, walk by the Spirit. That word walk there means your conduct of life. How you walk through this life, how you behave yourself in this life. So if you walk by the Spirit, then you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Okay, so Paul just admitted that that biting and backbiting and devouring and hating and hurting other people, he said, that's an act of the flesh. That's the way you naturally are. You want to avoid that? You want to be different than that? There's only one way you can do it, because you can't do it after your flesh. You can't do it by, you can't be better. You're doing the best you can. And the best some people can do is biting and devouring and destroying other people. That's who they are. That's their nature. That's their character. That's why they're politicians. Did I say that out loud? I, I'm sorry. I'm, I didn't answer. That's the natural way that human beings are by the flesh. How are you going to avoid it? Well, you can't unless you have the Spirit of God taking up residence in you. And if you follow the leading of the Spirit of God. If you walk out your life after the Spirit of God, who is acting as a governor on your behavior, only then are you going to turn from being a hateful, devouring, backbiting person to being a sacrificially loving person who serves other people. Only by the Spirit of God is that going to be accomplished. And that's why Paul could say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, Paul just created a contrast between spirit and flesh. He just said, the spirit has desire and the flesh has desire. And then he said, follow after the spirit. Because look at verse 17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit. Can I get a witness? Yeah. Here, we'll try this one. Um, anybody in the room prefer to be an always helpful, godly, loving, Christian man or woman of God so that when other people see you, they think, there goes a person of God, a different kind. We all want to be that, don't we? That's what we, How many of you are that? That'd be none. But you want to be. You want to be. Why aren't you? You want it. You desire it. Why aren't you? Because you're in the flesh. You're still living in your body. And your fleshly desires are at war against the spirit's desires. And you can have both of those desires in the same head at the same time. I don't want to be like I am. I do not. No, that's me talking. I don't want to be like I am. And I'm exactly like this. I wish 
every day that I could be a walking, talking, living example. Living was that word. It didn't quite make its way out of my mouth. That I could be a walking, talking, living example of Christianity. I want to be that every day, everywhere I go, every interaction I have with another human. I want them to be improved by the fact that we had that interaction together. That when I walk away, they feel good and they feel better and they know more about Christ and they say, what a good man that is. I can't wait for him to come see me again. That's what I want. It's not what I get. No, far too often I walk away from people and they go, wow, he was sarcastic. What was that about? Because <laughs> that's what I am. So Paul says that there is a battle for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Isn't it good to know that God knows that? You can't do the things you please. Now, that's a two-way street. That means on one hand, you can't do the sinful things you might please to do, the, the things you conjure up in your stupid little lizard brain, the things that you sometimes go, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in there and give her a piece of my mind. <laughs> I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to yell at everybody. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out drinking tonight. And if there just happened to be some illicit drugs around, well, all the best. I know what I'm going to do. And then the spirit mind gets a hold of you and says, you're not going to do that. You go, yeah, yeah, but I want to. Yeah, but you're not going to. Okay, so that's one. You can't do the things that you please to do. But the other side of that is, you want to be holy. You want to be righteous. You want to be the Christian person. You want to be the always good, helpful Samaritan in your life. You want to be, but you got the flesh. And the desires of the flesh will keep you from being that guy, too. And so the war continues in your head as the spirit and the flesh wrestle against each other. Am I boring you? No. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is there anybody else in this room that struggles with that the way I do? Yeah, because it's tough. Okay, so this is not the only place where Paul mentions that. He says it here almost like a shorthand, but it is essential to Pauline theology. He actually writes about it more extensively over in the book of Romans, and so... I don't think we're going to make it back to Galatians this morning as I look at the clock. Let's finish this morning over in Romans 7 where Paul is going to write about this very battle. Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul is going to expand on this idea that the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. But he's also going to write about it within the context of people being justified and that you can't be justified by the law. For sake of time, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, 
Previously, Paul has said, the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. So get that in your memory, that the law is fine. The law is holy. The law is righteous. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is us. The problem with the law is we can't do it. But there's nothing wrong with the law itself. So Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual. But me, I am of the flesh. And I'm a bond slave to sin. I am sold into bondage to sin. He picked up that language of unfree people who can be bought and sold. And he said, I am sold on the slave market of sin and it owns me. I like the law. The law is great. The law is holy and righteous. I aspire to the law. I can't do the law because I am a bond slave to sin. Verse 15, for that which I am doing, I do not understand. Can I get a witness? What I'm doing, I I don't get it. This isn't what I want to do. This isn't who I want to be. For I am not practicing that which I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Do you know why you wake up some nights in the middle of the night just overwhelmed with guilt? Because you're doing stuff you hate. And your conscience hates it. And the Spirit of God in you tells you that yet again, here you are guilty again. Boy, I'm telling you. I am, I'm telling you. I'm telling you a bunch of stuff. but, but, But I'm telling you. If it weren't for Christ, I'd be in complete despair. If it weren't for the fact that I know he's not just a potential savior, but that he is a complete and utter savior, and that he fully saves wretches like me, boy, if I didn't know that, I'd... I was going to use examples that there's too many kids in the room for. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing that which I want to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law that it's good. In other words, the law says don't do things, and then I do them, then I hate that I do it, proving that the law that said don't do it is good. That law is right. For now, no longer am I the one doing it, but it's that sin that indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And how does he prove that there's nothing good living in his flesh? For the wishing is present in me. Oh, I wish I could be better. Oh, I wish I didn't do that. Oh, I wish that I had more control over myself. The wishing is present with me, but the doing of the good is not with me. And that proves that the law is right. The law is good. The law is just. The problem is me because there's nothing good in me. By the way, that's not Calvinism. That's Bible. I just want to point it out that the Bible says you're totally depraved. And if you're totally depraved, how are you going to save yourself? 
You can't. You are your problem. Oh, I need to move here. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not in me. For the good that I wish to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish to do. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not wish to do, then I am no longer the one doing it. It is the sin which dwells in me. So I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Can I get a witness? We all want to do good. We get up every day going, today I do better. And then, you know, by the time you're out of bed, you're like, oh, no, I already blew it today. That uh, didn't take long. It's a principle. It's built in. I find then this principle, that evil is present in my flesh, the one who wishes to do good, and I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's my testimony right there. Wretched man that I am. Can I get a witness? Not that I'm a wretched man. But that you share in that wretchedness. <laughs> that you too recognize in yourself your own sinfulness and depravity and that while you want to be better, you're just not. Because there is this principle, this law in your flesh that fights against the spirit of God and keeps you in bondage to this sinful nature that is in you. And that makes you wretched. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I like that word wretch because it perfectly describes me. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Paul refers to his flesh as this dying body. This body that gets old and gets sick and decays and ends up in the grave. In this lifetime, then, what are we going to do? Who is going to set us free from this body of death? Notice the next phrase does not say... The law will. Get busy. Do more good fleshly stuff. And then you can deliver you from your body of death. Notice what the answer is to Paul's impassioned plea here. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the answer. Amen. 
You can't do it. But Christ can because he's a complete savior. Because he saves utterly and completely. And he is going to save you from this body of death. And you never heard such good news in your wretched little life. Than to hear that Jesus Christ is a perfect savior who saves wretches. Who saves enemies. Who saves people who are opposed to goodness and godliness. That's wonderful news. Jesus Christ saves sinners. Of whom, says Paul, I'm chief. And I'm giving Paul a run for his money. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. And that's the battle that every single one of us is in on a daily, moment-by-moment life. That's what we're in That is why I hate the number eight right there. Because that number eight makes you think that Paul has begun a new chapter. And he has not begun a new chapter. He is continuing in his praise and doxology, answering the question, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For me, on one hand, I myself, with my mind, I am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, I am serving the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Paul is continuing to say, oh, I'm a wretch and Jesus Christ is great. And Jesus Christ is marvelous and gracious and a savior and a complete and utter savior who saves to the uttermost. Whoever lives to make intercession for us so that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. That's the same thing he's writing to the Galatians, that we are free free indeed, and we have been set free by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't use your freedom for an occasion to the flesh, but your flesh is going to rise up, and the battle is going to ensue, and it's going to be a lifelong thing. But I thank God through Jesus Christ that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to a wretch like me. And that's mighty, mighty good news. No, that's an understatement. You're not the master of understatement. Today I am. (laughs) That is such good, great, wonderful, fabulous. I'm running out of adjectives. That is such glorious news. That is such comforting news. I can go to bed tonight and 
My head will hit the pillow and I'll be able to sleep knowing that I am safe and that I am secure in the hands of God because Christ himself died for me and that God himself chose me since before the foundation of the world and that even in those places where I sin and rebel that my Savior is still in the process of saving me, a wretch like me, a sinner, a rebel like me because he is great and greatly to be praised.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.